What you're about to hear is a recording that was made with the sincere belief that it would be about the nature of Abraham's family dysfunction. However, I got so caught up about uh, other related subjects that I found myself 30 to 40 minutes in without really having begun what I was going to make the video about. So I am placing this note here at the beginning so that you're not confused by the evidently changing intentions as you proceed through the video slash podcast. Thank you very much for your patience and the family dysfunction video slash podcast will be uploaded tomorrow. Hey guys, this is Cobain. Today what we're going to be talking about is looking at the history of mankind as a family history. And we're going to be looking at that specifically through the lens of the family history of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Before getting into that, I want to say a prayer and then say a few words about my Patreon. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee do we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and thine all-holy good, and life-creating spirit, both now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. So this video is premiering live, which means you can make a one-time donation to this channel in the dollar sign button which is under the chat box to the right of the video screen. Uh, any and all donations are very much appreciated and a very special thank you to everyone who has become a patron. As I've said before, your patronage really helps me continue to produce this volume of content. It helps me manage the discussion that grows up around the content and it especially helps me have the time to engage personally on a one-on-one -on -one basis with number one those who are at the top level of patronage and number two those who I think um, could be really helped by something that I have to say so those who have called um, have expressed very positive feelings about it uh, so you can get a guaranteed at least one hour of you know one-on-one -on -one discussion tutoring whatever you want to call it per month um, if you subscribe to the top patron level which is $20 on Patreon and 25 on YouTube because of the higher proportion that YouTube takes. Uh, in none of these calls has it actually been one hour. Uh, it's consistently gone above uh, something like two, three, even four hours and I'm perfectly fine with that. Um, if that's just how long it organically goes, I'm, I'm not going to nickel and dime you. Uh, but I just want to say that because uh, I want to you know, without being a little, without being too cringy, say you know there there is value. I think if you really enjoy the content, if you really get something out of my, uh, um, I don't know, my my approach to scripture and its relation to orthodoxy and and so on and so forth. Um, so it is incredibly helpful. Uh, I don't want to say too much more about that. Um, just you can do a one-time donation uh, as well. Uh, and if you just look at the description box, uh, there's some more details. Uh, so, first of all, why talk about the history of Abraham's family and the human family as a family history? Why do I always use this phrase, human family? I don't actually know from whom I picked it up. Um, because as long, I don't, 
for the past five, six, maybe seven years, I've been saying the human family rather than uh, mankind or the human race or whatever. And the reason that I really like this phrase human family is because I think it captures two things in a single memorable phrase. Number one, it captures the commonality which every human person shares with every other human person. The notion of a family conjures up in our mind the image of multiple persons being bound together in a single kind of society or organism. And it conjures up in our mind the reality that to speak of our relationships with each other as human beings is not merely to speak of our blood relations as if it is a simple empirical fact. Rather, those blood relations play a substantial role in constituting the ongoing relationships which continue to govern and define our lives as particular human beings. So to be the son of a particular person, to be the son of a specific named father and mother, that endows you with a certain way of being human, not only in the reality that you will acquire from them certain characteristics according to your bloodline, but it also will endow you with certain characteristics and virtue of being under normative circumstances brought up under this specific household. And the connection between the notion of family and the notion of household is a significant one. Because to speak of families as those organisms which dwell in households is to capture a correspondence between man and creation. Man is a miniature representation of creation, as we say all the time on this channel. The creation is a declaration of the face and presence of God, and man is the image of God. Thus, there is a correspondence between the creation and man. Houses in the scriptures are consistently associated with, because they are largely built out of, trees. And trees are the first subject in scripture which is said to be fruitful. And in the same context, you have the grain plants which have seed in them. Uh, and the fruitfulness and multiplication which is predicated of the human family at the end of Genesis 1 is an echo back to the third creation day, where it's the trees which are fruit trees, fruit-bearing fruit, and specifically they are sacramental trees. They are the trees which produce uh, grapes, which make wine. They are the trees which produce olives, which produce, of course, olive oil. And you have the grain plants, which, of course, produce bread. And because you are what you eat, we find that human beings have a correspondence with this living, multiplying dimension of creation. That is creation insofar as it is endowed with God's own internal productivity. Man is given as food these very plants which were created in the third creation day. And so man and trees are associated with one another throughout the history of human Redemption and glorification. Because as we've spoken of many times before, the history of the human family is not merely a history of remedying that which went wrong in the beginning. It is a history of continuing to perpetuate and perfect that which went right. It is a terrible mistake 
in contemporary Christian parlance to say over and over again, we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. You hear this all the time. You live in a fallen world, as if its fallenness was its principal characteristic. More important than the fallenness of the world is the fact that we live in a redeemed world, a world in which the seed which exists as son of the Father has been born into the world and has permanently bound himself to the world such that there is no unbinding, either him from the world or the world from itself. And all of this rolling together captures something about the way that the Bible, and by implication God, who inspired the Bible and all of its details, the way in which the Bible does theology, the way in which the Bible attests to the character of God, man, and the world. The Bible does theology in a very concrete and particular way. We learn these great truths about God, man, and the world, but we learn them through their instantiation in the concrete particulars of the human story. We learn them in the language of symbolism and typology of blood and bone, of dirt and sand and trees and leaves and seeds and birds and beasts. And the advantage to that is that it naturally suits itself to communication to other human beings who live in this concrete world. Understanding scripture through the lens of the church's tradition and theology is incredibly helpful in that when we open up the Bible, we read God created the heavens and the earth. We understand the personal character of this God because we have learned it from the church. Nevertheless, if we separate the tradition from the scriptures and we begin to articulate a complex philosophical and highly abstract theology without connecting it at every moment to the scriptures, suddenly it's going to look like Christianity has very little to say to actual human beings because the reality is that human beings encounter trees and birds and ants a lot more often than they encounter the philosophical abstractions that tend to be most prominent in at least the circles that I run in, which I recognize are a minority of people. And this actually is not a hit at any person. It's just a statement about the way that we tend to talk to you know, each other, myself included, the language which is most natural um, to, I think, those who work in an academic and theological context. Uh, it's very important that we never develop a disdain for normal people. This is one of the reasons I love C.S. Lewis so much, is that he didn't disdain normal people. I got yelled at once in confession for this. It was the kind of yell that is, like, targeted you know, it's the kind of criticism that Jesus uses that's uh, incredibly purposeful. It's not just an outburst of anger, um, but it, it really had a positive impact on me. And I went away um, from that particular confession. I'm not feeling beaten down and having the grief that leads to death, but I felt like I'd had an epiphany. Um, so I'm forever thankful for that particular word, which was cast like a sharp stone into the heart. Um, but this is the advantage of thinking in biblical terms uh, that we don't need to apply it in a secondary sense to the concrete reality of human life. It's already inbuilt, as it were, to the nature of the discussion. So in speaking of the human race as a family, we're speaking of it as an organism, an organism which is constituted as an in, uh, invariably 
particular and specific kind of thing. There is no generic human nature. There is only human nature as it is instantiated in the complicated web of human relationships along which are countless nodes of individual stories which are governed by their complicated histories in relation to everybody around them. If we think of the human family as a web along which runs a powerful uh, current of energy, the movement on any node of this web, which in this image represents a particular person, an individual, that movement will affect every other node on this web. And at every moment, in every new encounter, a particular kind of relationship, a contingent relationship is being created. You walk by a person on the street. That history becomes part of your memory in that it becomes part of who you are. It constitutes your particular story. And that particular story is what makes you a unique individuation of human nature. It is an interesting um, phenomenon that there are a few people who are born with perfect memories. That is, they have the ability to remember absolutely everything which has ever happened to them. And the phenomenon of people who uh, uh, they physically die, but then they're resuscitated, they often describe having their whole life flash before their eyes, which suggests to me that we actually, in principle, have a perfect memory. What is imperfect is our capacity to access that memory. There's more that could be said on that, but I say that only in relation to the significance of memory as the uh, constitutive principle of our individuality. The experiences that we have which are always experiences in relation both to ourselves, to God, and to other human beings, those experiences constitute our inner selves, and our inner selves are signified according to God's knowing of us, and God's knowing of us is described in Scripture and tradition as memory, which is why we say in the Eucharist, remember us, O Lord. Next time you're at the Divine Liturgy, just, just take note in your mind how much of our language in and around the Eucharist is centered on the idea of memory. Just look at the Psalms, which just so happen to be selected to be read during the communion of the faithful. You are going to find the language of memory absolutely everywhere. The reason that is the case is because the Eucharist is the personally present incarnate Logos, and it is in the Logos that the Father does all of his activities through the Spirit. And it is because he is the Logos, he is the revealed character of God, that the Logos is most intimately associated with the mind, the mind of the Lord. The Spirit searches out the deep things of God by searching out Christ. We have the mind of Christ by the Spirit because the Spirit also searches out our hearts. And by being joined to the Lord, especially in the Holy Eucharist, we become joined to God's memory, which is why we bring forth the elements. We recite the names of the living and the dead whom we want commemorated. You can see the word memory inside of that. And that is given a particular significance because words, memory, knowing, existence, these are all wrapped up together in a single concept from many different angles. The world collapses in on itself in the flood. And then the turning point, Genesis 8-1, is God remembered Noah. 
and those who are with him. Noah built a microcosm of the world. It just so happens to be in a treehouse, which we call the Ark. It's a three-story sanctuary. It is sanctified in a ritual way. So it is a microcosm of the world. It is a dwelling place for God, and it is where God focuses his mind, or the sun, the logos, the wisdom of God. That is the turning point through which creation begins to be reborn. The spirit comes down just as he did on the first day of creation. The spirit hovered over the waters, Genesis 1-2. And in Genesis 8, we have a wind, same word, ruach, which blows over the waters. And then in Genesis chapter 9, when we have the covenant made with Noah, what do we see? I will remember my covenant when I see my bow in the clouds. Well, the bow in the clouds corresponds thematically and visually with the Holy Spirit, because the bow is the light form of what is felt in what we call wind. Light, wind, fire, these concepts are rolling together, which is why in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah we have a series of allusions to the flood ending with Lot's descent into a cave, contrasting with Noah's ascent to a mountain, and Lot is the one who is cursed, whereas Noah is the one who did the cursing of Canaan. Lot drinks wine unto drunkenness, Noah drinks wine unto Sabbath rest, but my point here is that there is a correspondence between spirit, wind, fire, and so on, because you have, in the midst of these allusions to the flood story, fire raining down from heaven. First thing you get is water raining down from heaven. Then you have fire raining down from heaven after the grain has been brought up by the water which fertilizes the ground. And then finally, of course, in Exodus, you have bread raining down from heaven. So water lays the ground for fire to bake the grain that comes up. And so you get holy bread, which manifests the presence of God. See, this is what is meant when we say that everything is connected. You can pick any one concept or any one verse, and you're going to be able to go through the whole uh, significance of the Christian story no matter where you start, which is both a blessing and it's a curse because we live in sequential time, and here we're 17 minutes and 10 seconds in, and I still have not talked about the alleged main subject in the video, so I'll probably have to give it a title which reflects that fact, but... Let's start talking about that. It's a family history. And think about the way we use uh, the notion of family even in the English language. Family what? It's a family tree. Well, that's not an accident. It's no accident that even when we don't have these symbolic concepts consciously present in our mind, that we reach for them and we utilize them anyway because we're created in the image of the Logos and the creation objectively symbolizes and declares the Logos. And every symbol is objectively linked with every other symbol in a specific way, whether or not we recognize it. Because symbolism isn't something that we invented. It's not something we impose onto the world. The world was created as an intrinsically and innately symbolic world. It is internal to the nature of the sun that it declares the glory of Jesus Christ. It is not something that we looked at or God looked at and said, oh, well, that would be a nice allegory to tell of the sun because it was through the sun the S-O-N, that the S-U-N was created in the first place. So we reach for these things in the English language instinctively because to recall a kind of platonic concept, it's part of our self-memory. We're created after the image of the Logos in potential. All of the Logi are present inside of us, which is why we're able to make sense of the world as a single kind of interrelated structure. And so we will naturally reach for certain symbols 
that we haven't consciously apprehended because they are inside of us in one way or another. So we talk about a family tree. And like a real tree, a family tree bears all of the markers of its history. You cut down a tree, you look at the rings, you're going to be able to tell more than just its age. You'll be able to tell the specific character of certain of the seasons. Maybe this was a dry season, this was a wet season, maybe it survived a fire here, and so on and so forth. Well, in a family history, the multiplication of the children through the generations is more than the simple act of producing a new human being. It's the act of nursing them and bringing them up within the home. There are several births within the history of an individual human being because every beginning is also an end and every end is also a beginning. Think about it. The beginning of a human life uh, 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 in the world, that is as he proceeds from the mother's womb, is the end of a prior stage of life in which he was embedded in a watery darkness. You can see here a human child replays the story of creation in the beginning. In the beginning there was uh, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was what? Without form, void, it was dark. Darkness was over the face of the what? Waters. So a child is born into the world and he's wet. He's born from water and he's uh, overwhelmed by all of this light which now permeates his whole existence. I mean, it's quite a shocking transition. So it is the end of one era and the beginning of another one. Well, the household in which the child is now going to be brought up is spoken of in feminine terms. And so when he leaves the household to build his own household, that itself is another kind of birth and it is another kind of death. Because death is a separation. That's why when Abraham cuts animals in two, that signifies in a very specific way the death which is proper to the whole sacrificial system. When Adam goes into a deep sleep, he is separated into two pieces. One of them is made into the woman and then he's joined back together just as the fire passes between the two pieces of Abraham's sacrificial animals and by implication they are united back together through the Holy Spirit while Abraham is in a deep sleep. The only two times the word is used in Genesis, Genesis 2, Genesis 15. Well, the second birth from the household within which the person was brought up is especially embodied in his passing through the front doorway. You find again and again doorways signify the birth canal uh, Sarai and Abraham are at a doorway when Isaac's birth is announced. Hannah prays at a doorway. In the book of Kings, uh, a prophet announces the death of uh, someone's infant uh, child or, or her child, and it is fulfilled as soon as she passes through a doorway. This is a very important symbol that is most prominent in Passover, where the blood is put on the doorpost and you have a new birth uh, and the transition point is exactly midnight, where there is the movement from evening to morning. That's the exact moment at which the transition occurs. Birth is resurrection, evening to morning is resurrection. But in Genesis 2, 23 to 24, we see this stated uh, close to explicitly. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, therefore, in other words, because of what has just been said, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Well, this separation and then unification is replayed in the story of each of their children. Because the leaving of father and mother, that corresponds to the cutting off of Adam's side from him. And then the reunification of that which has been cut off to the wife, that signifies the uh, joining back together of these two subjects in a glorified form. And that glorification, you can see in Proverbs, the wife is called the crown or the glory of her husband. And then in the book of Genesis, this is rooted in the fact that the Hebrew word for woman, ish, is a pun on the Hebrew word for fire or esh, which is why you have fire in Genesis 15, where Abram goes into a deep sleep. It's why in 2 Kings chapter 1, you have uh, uh, the messengers from the king saying to the prophet, uh, a man of God come down, or or ish of God come, or I should say the, the the Hebrew word for woman is isha, and this is the first time man is called ish. So fire glorifies man, and so they say, man of God come down, ish of God come down. And he says, okay, the esh of God will come down as fire from heaven comes down. Um, uh, so regardless of the etymological connection, whether there is such a developmental connection in history, I happen to think that there is. Um, but whether or not that's true, there's no question that the biblical authors understood the correspondence and developed literary features on that basis. So the history of an individual human being is a history of, uh, of many cuttings off and unifications with new subjects. The mode of those cuttings off and the mode of those new unifications, well, that belongs to the will of the human being and the providence of God, which creates a variety of possibilities among which the human being uh, can and must choose. He can't choose none. He must choose one. And it, he will always fulfill the purpose appointed for him by, by God. But whether that fulfillment is to his blessing or to his ultimate destruction, well, that belongs to his will. We'll give that a more systematic treatment uh, at another time. For now, I'll just point out, because some people said they actually enjoy some of the tangents. You never know what exactly you will encounter when you dive into the Bible. Uh, you see uh, two pharaohs both of them have been raised up by God so that his name might be proclaimed to all nations. And you have two Israelites. One is Joseph, one is Moses. Both pharaohs fulfill the purpose for which they were raised up by God. One submits to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is blessed. Egypt has made a prosperous civilization. The nations stream to Egypt. They hear the word of Joseph. They buy from him bread. And they, in the process, learn of the God of heaven. In the other case... The Pharaoh resists. He refuses to hear the word of God through Moses. He rebels. Egypt is destroyed. Israel leaves. Israel becomes wealthy. Egypt loses everything. For four centuries, Egypt is off the map as the uh, Amalekites, or as I understand them to be historically, the Hyksos, uh, we meet them in Exodus 17, come in, they conquer, they rule them as tyrants for four centuries until by the helping hand of Israel, God raises Egypt back up. An interesting subject for another time with a very hopeful theological message. But the point is, in both cases, the God of heaven is exalted. In both cases, the Gentiles hear of the one true God. You have a mixed multitude. It goes out with Israel in Exodus chapter 12. Rahab has said, we have heard of what the God of heaven and earth, who made all things, has done in Egypt. The Gentiles have heard, of the, heard the true word of God indeed, through the very person that God had appointed for that purpose, but that 
fulfillment ended up destroying the one through whom it was fulfilled. But it didn't have to be that way because we have met an earlier Pharaoh for whom that was not the case. So we see the way that God works in history. There's no point in resisting his will because, in fact, who has resisted his will, as Paul says? No one has resisted his will. We've all fulfilled it. But God leaves it to us and uh, insistently desires that it be for our blessing and not our curse. It is his desire that he redeem the creation, and he will redeem it whether we like it or not. We, it is not in our power to stop it, but we can become part of that unto his delight and ours. So it's a family history, and families are like trees. Well, why do you think Abraham is always worshiping at trees? You have repeated notes given to us by Moses in the book of Genesis that Abraham uh, gathers his people to worship at a tree. It's in, in Genesis 12, we're told that uh, Abram passed through the land to the place. That's a word that's often used to refer to sacred sites, a temple, to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. Morah means teaching. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your seed, I will give this land. So you have a tree, and God is speaking here about seed. What's the message? Seed, tree. Seeds grow into trees. There's a very concrete message, which is so obvious that we often miss it. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So he built there an altar to the Lord. Abraham builds what he does in response to the word of God. And indeed, the word of God is called in some places the rain, which fertilizes the ground. And in some, and in some places, the seed, which takes advantage and grows from the fertilized ground. The oak of Mara, the oak of teaching. Abram calls on the name of the Lord. Well, this phrase, call on the name of the Lord, is repeatedly used in liturgical context. It's used to refer to what happens on the day of Pentecost. It's used to refer to what happens in baptism and the Eucharist. It means that we call on God to act in the manner that he has promised to act. We call on God to be who he is. Because God does not lie, he reveals himself to be who he truly is, and we call on him to act accordingly, and so give life to the world. So Abram calls on the name of the Lord, and in calling on the name of the Lord, and asking God to act as he has promised to act, God invariably responds in his own way and in his own time, which is always the best way in time, whether or not we can immediately see it. He invariably responds, and thus, the calling on the name of the Lord becomes simultaneously a proclamation of the name of the Lord. So we see Abram has 318 fighting men, Genesis chapter uh, 14. So if he has a private army of 318 men, he must have quite a large people with him. If Pharaoh wants to see him when he goes down into the land of Egypt, well, he must have a pretty large retinue with him. Um... That, that's something people often miss when they, they this is what explains by the way the, the uh, large numbers in the book of Exodus there was a very substantial number of people who went down to Egypt with uh, Jacob and were taken in as, uh, uh, as adopted children uh, as homeborn sons uh, we're told in, uh, in Genesis 11 and 12 that Abram made souls in Haran the word is made the same word that is used in Genesis 1 to refer to God's creation of the world well think about what we uh, say about baptism baptism is a recreation of the human being it is by the name of the Lord that the worlds are made and so by calling on the name of the Lord Abram gathers Gentiles around his sanctuary by in whom they are remade because the name of the Lord enters into them gives them a new birth and they worship the one God of heaven. There are 
I have a whole video on Gentiles in the Old Testament, and not just in the Old Testament, but around the world there is abundant evidence that God made himself known to all nations prior to the coming of Christ. It's one of, I think, one of the most remarkable um, arguments that really needs to be used more for the reality of a personal God. People ask the question, well, if God is real, then why did he just talk to one small people group in the Near East? Why didn't he talk to everybody? And it's a great question, and these overcomplicated answers do us no good because there's quite a simple answer, and that is he did, and there's an immense amount of evidence for it. Uh, Want to look at a, that subject, I'd recommend when Cordoban's book, uh, In the Beginning God, The Case for the Original Monotheism, which is kind of the a discussion of the academic history of this subject, um, and I'll, I will say no more on that, but uh, this is really one of the most exciting um, lines of, of evidence for the Christian interpretation of the world, that God is a real personal being. Um, so to your seed, I will give this land. He says this at the Oak of Mara, Mara being the Oak of Teaching. So how does Abraham grow the seed which is his family? Well, it's by teaching. It's by proclaiming the name of the Lord. It's by in somewhat anachronistic terms, evangelization. This is why when uh, Jacob's uh, two older sons go and kill the Shechemites who were being circumcised, Jacob says, you have made me a stench in the nose of the people all around me. Well, why did that matter? Because Jacob was attempting to teach them about the one God of heaven and earth. God says the, uh, the iniquity of the Canaanites was not yet full. And this has a context. God was actively through his prophets, proclaiming himself to the Canaanites. And many repented and followed the word of the patriarchs who were simultaneously prophets. Abraham is a prophet, Genesis chapter 20 says. And he acted as one. He prophesied to the people there. He predicted what was coming. And that word was fulfilled in the Exodus and the conquest. Um, so Abraham teaches. And by that teaching, he grows his family. So, uh, 318 uh, fighting men. Well, 318 is actually the numerical value of Eliezer. Uh, uh, Eliezer was a homeborn son. He was the legal heir of Abraham in, uh, in Genesis 14. And of course, uh, Isaac is miraculously conceived from Sarai's womb. But this right of legal inheritance is a consistent principle throughout the scripture. It's the basis for Jesus' reception of the crown through his father Joseph. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see the throne right to pass Jesus through Joseph because Joseph adopts Jesus as his son. principle of adoption also explains things like uh, how it is that Caleb, who is one of the two men of the original generation to inherit the land of Canaan, Caleb is simultaneously a Kenizzite, that's a Gentile, and a son of Judah. So you have a, a guy who's both a Judahite and a Gentile. Well, that's because of adoption, which happened, in fact, all the time. That's why the argument about Matthew 1 being irrelevant is, is just not true. I mean, Matthew, it, it would be an error which is, quite honestly, too foolish to make. If indeed it was an error, it would be perfectly obvious that there's no point in making a genealogy which runs through Jesus's non-blood father if it's only blood which counts as regards the inheritance. Because let's not forget that the inheritance of the crown is not something any separate from just the inheritance of the household as a whole. The crown is part of the private property, as it were, of the house of David. 
Okay, I'm actually going to split this into two parts. I'm going to title this something other than Abraham's family, uh, a family history. I'll title it something like Trees, Biblical Symbolism, Freeform Discussion, blah, blah. And I'm going to record uh, the next one now, and I'll, that will be uploaded tomorrow. So I will see you then.